You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ask Concussion Doc. My guest today is Dr. Shirley Blanc. Hi, Shirley. Hi. Dr. Shirley Blanc is a neurooptometrist in downtown Toronto. She is a fellow and advisory board member of NORA. For those who don't know, that is the Neurooptometric Rehabilitation Association. She's also a medical advisory board member and contributor to our concussion training rehab uh, program with Complete Concussion Management. Uh, she's also an external referral source and research collaborator with the University of Toronto's David L. McIntosh Sports Medicine Clinic. Her clinical practice focuses on the assessment and treatment of patients with visual dysfunction from concussions of all types and severities. And her patients range from athletes, both professional and amateur, to members of the general public with vision-related issues due to uh, concussions. So Shirley, welcome to Ask Concussion Doc. How are you? Thanks so much, Cam. I'm good. I'm good, thank you. Do you have snow where you are today? Not yet. No? But apparently it's... We woke up with a little dusting, so it's... It's on the way. Winter is coming. It is. It is for sure. <laughs> so let's uh, let's let's kind of start off light here. Let's talk about um, just neurooptometry in general and what is a neurooptometrist versus you know kind of a regular optometrist. What's the differentiator? How is that different? So. I mean, a general optometrist will check, you know, how clear vision can get. So with the optimal prescription, whether it's glasses, contact lenses, laser surgery, um, consultations, um, ocular health checks, um, they'll do, you know, like, we'll, you know, in a general exam, you know, we check for gross sort of uh, eye movement restrictions, um, gross um, or sort of large um, uh, binocular vision issues, peripheral vision testing, glaucoma screening, all these things. Um, but when someone comes in with a concussion, you know, a general eye exam isn't necessarily enough to know why they're experiencing what they're experiencing. We do have to know, you know, how clear vision is, what the prescription is, is, are the eyes healthy? Is their peripheral vision intact? So we have to know this information, but then the neurooptometrist takes it one step further and dives a bit deeper into things such as you know, tracking of the eyes, how the eyes are working together. Are they fighting each other? Is there stress in the system? Are the eyes integrating well with the balance systems in the body? Um, how, how are the eyes integrating with the neck? Um, how's visual memory, all these sort of visual perceptual things. So um, there's definitely this dive deeper into the brain with, with respect to the eyes in a neurooptometric exam. And would a neurooptometrist also engage in standard optometric examinations or you typically, you know, divide your practice at that point and you go, okay, I'm going, I'm going the neurooptometric route versus, you know, standard optometry. Well, for me, I, I see regular patients as well. Like that's part of my practice. So I don't only do neurooptometric assessments, but in order to do a neurooptometric assessment, the patient would have to have a general eye exam, either after their injury, if it's been within a year, or an eye exam in general, if it's been over a year. Um, that's my criteria. 
So they have to come in with that baseline information, or I do it in my office first, a general exam, then they come back another day. So it'd be too much on one day to do mm-hmm. both, mm-hmm. um, to do the neurooptometric assessment. But we, I need that baseline information in order to proceed further. Cause I have to know, is there a cataract in the way? Is there, you know, an issue affecting their vision? I need to know about this, um, before going into the functional part of things. Do do standard optometrists um, screen for neurooptometric deficiencies and and refer for that? Because we have a, a lot of patients that will say, "Well, I've been to an optometrist and my eyes are fine," and you know, obviously, I'm saying, "Well, it's it's different." Like I know that it's different. Um, would would most standard optometrists like pick these things up just in general examination and say, look, I think you need something more advanced or would they typically, you know, miss these types of things? So, I mean, history is key, of course, right? And to ask the right questions as someone, um, you know, is complaining of certain visual symptoms and, you know, if there's a concussion history, um, it's important to note that. Um, But there are optometrists who are well-versed in sort of how to screen for this. Like they've attended courses by neurooptometrists saying, hey, this is what, you know, some maybe some key tests that you can do to look for this. Um, other optometrists, they might not have that education, but they might know who to refer to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I did when I first started the specialty. I was doing my general optometry exam and the patient presented with all these different symptoms and the exam was perfect. The general exam was perfect. And I'm like, how can I not know how to, I don't know how to help her. And so I referred her to a neurooptometrist who I knew in the area. Um, at least I knew to do that to, um, to help her out. But I knew that the general exam just wasn't enough for me to really solve her problems or figure it out. And it wasn't explained by the findings in the general exam. So, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's really, you know, up to the optometrist to be educated on, um, sort of what questions to ask, what to look for, that kind of thing. Kind of par for the course for all healthcare professionals, I guess, right? Some, some know, you know, about concussion and many don't. So I think it, it kind of goes hand in hand. Now, in terms of neurooptometry, I know concussion is a big focus, but a lot of it is, you know, on the developmental side with, um, you know, kind of like idiopathic things. Um, so how would, would, wouldn't, would a, would a behavioral optometrist be the same as somebody that would do concussion work? Um, are those two things synonymous? Is the, is the process the same uh, or is it different because of, you know, one being, you know, something, let's say from birth versus something related to an injury? Exactly. Even when you approach, um, you know, therapy, you know, you have to approach it as vision therapy for the developmental side. So you're, you're sort of addressing something that didn't quite develop as it should have versus rehabilitation, which, you know, perhaps it developed, developed perfectly, perfectly. And then because of injury, it's now dysfunctional. So you have to sort of get it back to where um, the state was before. So there's a different approach or different mindset when it comes to the developmental side versus the uh, injury rehabilitation side. And, you know, it's interesting within sort of the vision therapy community, um, there are different specialties, you know, like I will send to colleagues of mine, if, I, if there's a two-year-old with a turned eye, you know, you know, they're better sort of colleagues who can, um, you know, facilitate that 
therapy, um, or they'll refer to me for brain injury. Um, so they're definitely different mindsets. Um, and neurooptometry, it's not just concussion. I mean, I also see, you know, Lyme disease patients or, um, post viral, I've seen post COVID, uh, a few post COVID actually right really? now. Um, yeah. Like those long haulers. Um, yeah, yeah. and they have, they have visual, they have visual dysfunctions. Yeah. And very, wow. um, very kind of comparable to almost the Lyme disease profile, like just this mm. post sort of infectious um, profile, uh, which is interesting. So it's not the same as a concussion case, of course, but I see these sort of similarities, um, you know, fatigue, photophobia, um, you know, there's just different patterns that I see with these different mm. populations. I think there's overlap, um, you know, just, yes. just, just looking at the symptoms of post COVID and then post concussion. I think there's a lot of overlap, particularly from like an inflammatory perspective, a neuro perspective. Um, I know, I know myself and Dr. Herkel have talked about this as well. Um, so that's, that's interesting that you're seeing the visual side too. That's, uh, that's really, uh, really interesting. Um, right. From a, you know, obviously being a concussion show, let's, let's go down the concussion path. What are the most, what would you say are the most common visual dysfunctions you see in a post-concussion patient, um, and then I'll and I'll I'll kind of follow that up once we once we go down this this rabbit hole because I want to know you know beyond that what um, what might a patient you know what may tip a patient off that may be listening to this thinking like these are the symptoms that I have maybe this is what's going on, um, but also then and then what a what a clinician may you know look for or tease out from their history that may tip them off to to say that they need some some vision therapy. So what, let's, let's start first with the most common, most common. Right. Cause this is a, one of those long answers to a short question. Yeah. yeah um, right. Well, um, the question wasn't that short. I tend to ramble, but <laughs> <it's okay. laughs> go ahead. Um, no, fair. Um, so, so sorry, starting with symptoms you mentioned. No, oh, I, sorry. The, the, the most common uh, Finding. visual, the most common visual dysfunctions you see is it okay because yeah we can separate this into sort of symptoms the patient might present with and findings mm -hmm. um in the actual assessment right mm -hmm. so going with findings um i often see things like um sensory integration dysfunction so the eyes are just not communicating well with your vestibular system your sort of inner ear balance system um not communicating well with where you are in space um uh, your proprioception systems or the neck might not be communicating with the eyes. Um, you know, eye movement disorders. So it's not like overt, like I can't move the eyes, but just sort of the quality of eye movements, um, you know, could be dysfunctional. Uh, binocular stress. So the eyes are fighting each other. So you can have perfectly aligned eyes, but they're just fighting each other. And that can cause this sort of visual stress that can affect many tasks. Um, visual motion sensitivity, that's a huge one. Um, just sensitive to things like, well, that goes to symptoms now, but with testing, you can actually sort of, uh, see this as well, um, trigger this with certain tests. And, um, you know, you can have visual perceptual things like just not being able to remember what you just saw or, um, sort of mentally manipulate visual patterns. Um, oh gosh, I can go on. But those are very comp and convergence issues. That's a huge one um, where the eyes just can't quite follow a target inward well. And that's a huge um, topic on its own. Um, but uh, and, you know, an, a final thing that is really important is the sort of functional peripheral tunneling. Um, so even if someone has perfectly fine intact peripheral vision, their ocular health is fine, but they're sort of functionally not 
um, processing things in their peripheral vision well. So whether it's they can't process movement in their periphery or they're startled with things coming from the side, their peripheral vision is just not quite on. And um, that can be very disorienting for um, a person. So it's kind of bleeding into sort of the symptom part of things. But these are... Um, you know, certain, you know, findings that I see. So if I see someone reading um, and they're moving their head as they're reading, that's a sign of tunneling because they're mm. not using their eyes fluidly. They have to use their head. There's no peripheral vision to be able to see the line it mm. fully. Just uh, things like that. And why, so, why does that, mm-hmm. why, why does that happen? Is it there? I'm not sure if we know the answer, but is it because they're they're very focused on their, you know, focal vision, like they're very focused on, you know, this, like, and is that some sort of adaptive strategy to something? Or, you know, how do you see that? Yeah, I mean, we can go very scientific with this as well. But patients tend to be very over focalized. So they're um, almost looking at a busy scene in sort of piecemeal, um, you know, snapshots in time and not getting this visual grounding. So it's very disorienting. It's kind of like when you're driving through a snowstorm and you put the brights on, you focus on individual snowflakes coming Mm. at you. And it's sort of that weird disorienting feeling versus if you sort of let your vision open up and then you can sort of ground yourself. That's a a common um, analogy that I give. So people tend to be very over-focalized and not really utilize their peripheral vision. So part of therapy um, the first part of therapy is to really try to open them up um, and try to get vision a little less tight and more open with peripheral vision. So with all those those kind of um, conditions or, or presentations that you that you see, is it is it common that you're going to have more than one of those in, in any given patient? Or is it usually like, you know, they're either going to have tunneling or they're going to have, you know, something else or some saccadic dysfunction or something else? Or is it, no, they're going to have a bunch of stuff and we're going to start, you know, working on it kind of simultaneously? I mean, the brain is so complex, right? So typically I won't see one finding in isolation, like we're going to target that and that only, and that's the way to, but you know, one thing can trickle into the other. So, uh, you know, if someone is tunneling in their vision, their eye movements won't be quite as fluid um, because you need that peripheral vision to sort of track something. Otherwise it's going to be choppy or you need the peripheral vision to know like making a saccade or uh, a fixation change from point A to point B, you need to know with your peripheral vision where to go. Your brain has to plan that. Mm-hmm. So if you're tunneling, then it'll be, sort of choppy in that movement as well. So um, you can sort of piece some things together um, versus like an isolated finding, mm-hmm. but there are different kinds of things we can see, but it, it all sort of, it comes together as a clinical picture, very typically. Right. And is there things that you would tackle, you know, first, second, third, or do you kind of go after, I know with, with us, like when we're looking at something um, like, let's say from a vestibular standpoint, like you, you start with like, okay, like we're going to start at this level because this is kind of, you know, more basic than this. And then you kind of build on that. And I'm assuming you kind of follow the same. hundred percent. So for example, you know, if your peripheral vision, if your spatial vision is just not there, you're not going to be able to do anything with your eyes. I mean, your eyes will just not know what to do. Um, you have to be grounded in space. Sometimes this requires also neck therapy to sort of help with that. Otherwise I can do all the vision therapy in the world, but if the neck is giving confusing information about where the head is in space, then I won't be as successful. So, you know, there has to be this multidisciplinary effort, but as far as my approach 
with vision rehab. I mean, you got to have that spatial vision first. You got to be able to fixate steadily on a point because then you can't move your eyes if you can't even fixate. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to keep your gaze stable and then you can start to work with eye movements and then you can start to work with the eyes working together um, and then sort of higher perceptual memory, uh, visual memory um, or the visual cognitive stuff. But there's this hierarchy for sure in how this should be approached. I agree. Mm -hmm. And it's it's interesting that you brought up, you know, kind of the other the other facets of this, because, you know, I think that you and I look at this in much the same way that, you know, there's, there's, you know, three systems kind of working together, um, you know, vision, vestibular and, and, and the neck, and they'll kind of block each other. Um, Do you advocate for, you know, working on these three systems simultaneously, or do you think there's, some sort of hierarchy? Like if you're like, Oh, I'm going to do vision therapy, but you know, I think they should have their neck cleared out first. Or would you say we, we can keep doing vision therapy, but simultaneously, I want you working um, with somebody through neck and vestibular, you know, stuff, or how do you kind of plan that out in your mind? Well, you know, it's an excellent question. And it's a question that, you know, I might not have all the answers to, but I believe that a simultaneous approach is a good approach. However, if there's a, for example, a primary vestibular issue, like a BPBV, like something where the crystals are out of whack and that, I mean, that has to be sort of fixed first, I think, you know, things like that before I proceed. Um, But yeah, I mean, people have these chronic neck issues. So for me to wait until the neck is completely healed, I mean, you know, why not intervene while this is happening? And actually, sometimes intervening with the vision part of things can actually make the neck therapy easier as well, right? So there's a lot of back and forth. um, And that's why the communication between providers, multidisciplinary providers is essential. Um, And I often sort of communicate back with my physios and the chiros that I deal with. And, you know, we're sort of... um, tag teaming with the patient. And I think that's really crucial mm-hmm. for the recovery. I, I mean, I've, I, I agree with you hundred percent on this, that it should be done simultaneously because I, and I, I feel that a lot of people do this in piecemeal and I'm not sure why that is. Maybe it's the provider, not, you know, educating enough on this, but I find a lot of people say, well, I'm going to try vision therapy for a bit first before I try this. And it's like, okay, well, why don't you, why don't you work both together? Because you're going to, you're going to hit a point in your vision therapy that if you do have these dysfunctions, let's say in your neck or in your vestibular, you know, function, you're going to hit a point in your vision therapy where you're, you're going to get blocked by these other dysfunctions where it's going to kind of, I think, plateau for you, where you're just not getting that benefit because you're not fixing the other pieces, but you know, working together, it's like, okay, you're gaining stuff on your vision, but then now you're gaining stuff with your neck and vestibular that's now unlocking you know, the potential for your eyes to, to do better. Um, I actually read a study that, that vestibular therapy, it was actually, it was, it was this like critical review of vestibular rehab for a concussion. And they found that patients with, with dizziness, post-concussion dizziness, you know, automatically. And if you read any of the like medical, you know, consensus statements, and uh, there's like clinical practice guidelines for sports med physicians um, and all these different things, they'll try to categorize concussion into these kind of subdomains based on symptom presentation. And so they'll say, well, if you're dizzy, that's a, you have a vestibular concussion subtype. So vestibular rehab is where you go. And then simultaneously you have vestibular rehab specialists thinking that, well, because I'm vestibular, I know concussion. Like we would go to these conferences down in the States and we'd be talking to people about concussion and they'd come up and, and, and we'd say, Oh, do you see any concussions? Oh, I'm a vestibular therapist. It's pretty much all I do. And you're like, okay, so, (laughs) but 
you know, how about the rest of the picture that's that's included in that? So there's this thought process, I think, in the healthcare world that if you, you know, if you have dizziness, then it must be vestibular, but it's it's not necessarily in that way. And actually, this 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 critical review found that um, the effectiveness of vestibular therapy for people with post concussion dizziness was only between 25 and 50 percent, which means that between half and three quarters of patients are not going to see improvement even though they're dizzy and even though they're seeing vestibular rehab. And I think vision could be a missing component of this. I think neck is likely a missing component of this as well. Um, right. So it, yeah, working together, I think is the only way to, Agreed. to really do this, because if you try to do it in silos, I think that you're going to go down the path of vestibular, you're going to get blocked because there's something going on with the eyes that hasn't been addressed. You're going to hit a plateau and people, the vestibular therapist goes, I can't help you anymore. So then now you're maybe going to, you know, fumble around, maybe stumble into vision therapy. If somebody kind of tips you off that way, you're going to go there and you're going to do, you know, that for a bit, but then you're going to hit another block because maybe something in the vestibular now is now unlocked, right? The way that I kind of describe this is like, picture yourself sitting in a room and it's this circular room with all these doors and each one, you can open the door and lead down a tunnel and you might get to the end of that tunnel and there may be a lock on the door. And you can't open it because you didn't get the key, which was the tunnel down the vestibular side that would have unlocked. How would a good analogy? Yeah. Like it's, it's some, some doors will have locks and some doors will have keys and some hallways will have keys and you need to have the key to unlock the door, but you have to kind of do them in the right, you know, you know, way and together. So. And I, you know, there are many, there are many studies, like the limitation of studies, I think is that you're right. Like they sort of go into these silos and we need more studies that are large scale, but multidisciplinary. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, that, you know, cause everything is all connected. How can rehab not be that way as well? That's what I think. Right. So, yeah. And I think, I think when people are working in, in, in the research world, I think that, you know, there's this concern that, and I think it's a valid concern that if you put too many things into the study, the question is going to be, well, which thing helped? Um, and so how do you really learn anything from that? Because all of a sudden it's like, you know, you're doing everything. So, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, maybe you only needed to do one. And so a lot of people start with, okay, if we do this one thing, what's the benefit? And then they may find that it has no benefit, but in reality, it may have tremendous benefit, but it needs, it needs the key to unlock it, to be able to, to for it to have that maximum benefit. So, and I also think that there's, you know, um, the silos that people work in. So if you're a vestibular therapist, you're trying to prove that vestibular rehab is effective. So you're going to just focus on that and not want to bring other people in. And I think the same thing goes probably for neurooptometry as they focus just on the optometric side and they don't consider that, you know, maybe if we brought in, you know, some, some network here, it might, you know, unlock some of this stuff and and help it out. So I'm a hundred percent. And not only that, that, yeah, not only that, like, I mean, inflammatory, you know, factors, you know, thyroid, um, you know, like gut brain issues. I mean, this is where Paul Herkel would Mm -hmm. come in, Dr. Paul Herkel. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you have to deal with that as well. I mean, just, you know, calming down the nervous system, making sure everything is in balance internally. um, That's another factor that's usually not necessarily looked at, I find, as a first line of defense, but I think it's super important, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, so that's a part of it too. And there, there's a concern. I've, um, I've been accused before of like promoting practitioner burnout by saying, okay, this one for this, this one for this, you know, but at the same time, you really need a team. I think I find the best success stories are those who really have a team versus one person attending to their care. Um, 
as long as that team is on the same page. Yes. <laughs> and communicating because yeah. this is where we have to work more on like what we have to work more on. Yeah. I find, um, you what know, I, and I, I really promote that. Yeah. What I found with, um, um, interprofessional collaboration on this, it's, it's like, okay, I need to find an OT, but I need to find one that has the same thought process as us. Because if I send them to somebody else, they're going to give them a different story to the patient, which is going to be confusing, right? You may send them to a healthcare professional. It's like concussion is permanent. Your brain is damaged and that's it. And then they, they come to me and I'm like, well, no, there's some dysfunctions that can be rehabbed and we can fix this. And now it's, you're creating confusion there. So it's like, you need to kind of find, you know, you need to make sure that people are on the same page and speaking the same language. Cause then it's like, Oh, they're all telling me the same thing. Okay. Then I I'm, you know, I'm more likely to comply. I'm more likely to go along um, with it and, and, and do the work. And I think that's important. Um, Unfortunately, and this is really the reality. And I see this all the time. Patients are navigating the system on their own, not knowing where to go. Right. And they don't know who to find. They don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. Um, no one's really quarterbacking the process. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, it's, it, it's tough for a lot of patients to sort of know what to do. Um, and so, you know, starting by one, you know, with one person, but at least that one person can say, okay, you need to go here to do this. You need to go here to do this. This is what I often do. Actually, if patients mm-hmm. are not sure what to do, I'm like, okay, I know a practitioner in your area yeah. who can work on this. I need an assessment of this yeah. or, you know, and then we'll go. So sometimes I'm the quarterback. Yeah. Um, well, what we're trying to do now with CCMI, um, is, is kind of create the ability for that to kind of happen in a, in, in a more natural way by connecting you know, the healthcare professionals. So right now we're actually building a, a, a program for OTs. Um, we're building a, what we're calling physician and specialist program so that we can like have neurooptometrists go through kind of base level, you know, concussion training to know what everyone else does. And now you can have a layer of neurooptometrists in there and they can refer to each other and they know who's in the network. They know who's speaking the same language and everyone can kind of work together. And as a patient, you can come to complete concussions find a clinic, but also find any specialty you're looking for. So if you're looking for vision therapy that knows concussion, you can find that list there, right? And so that's kind of what we're trying to build so that it makes it easier for the patient to find what they actually need, um, or at least find information that may, you know, give them information that can say you may need um, this. But, exactly. Yeah. So let's get back into vision. We've uh, taken, yeah, a little, sorry. <laughs> taken, taken a little sidebar there, but I think it's, I think it's good. I think this is a yeah, great, you know, I agree. It just, just kind of goes this way, but um, so let's say I'm a patient. Um, there's, there's another condition actually I want to ask you about um, okay. after, but let's, I, let's talk first okay. about um, what, what are some common symptoms that may tip off a patient? I mean, we obviously mentioned them when we we're talking about the conditions, but what are some other ones that I'm a patient and I've been, you know, let's say I'm dizzy. Uh, I have some headaches. What, you know, what may tip me off that a neurooptometrist may be able to, you know, help unlock something for me? Well, so for dizziness and headaches specifically, I mean, that that's really something that a practitioner has to kind of dive a little deeper into because it might not be um, primarily visual in nature necessarily. Right. So, you know, a practitioner might say for dizziness, you know, um, so, uh, is the room spinning or do you feel like you're spinning? Is it more lightheaded when you, is it more, when you get up, like when you lie on one side, is it better than the other side? I mean, just different probes to see perhaps, um, more the 
uh, more of a primary source of dizziness. Now it can also be visual as far as dizziness. And this is where we would come in. So um, oftentimes, you know, I would discover something like a small vertical misalignment of the eyes, whether it's because of vestibular dysfunction or whether it's because the neck is just off kilter or just their eyes have just sort of had that, it just got that tone after um, an injury. And that is a source of disequilibrium, dizziness. Um, so you have to be a detective really to figure out, okay, what's sort of causing that. But a patient being dizzy, I mean, they'd have to go to a practitioner to sort of suss that out. Um, headaches, I mean, that's a whole other topic, obviously, right? So, but I tell patients, listen, if you wake up with a headache, it's likely not visual. Mm -hmm. So that's like a big clue um, for me. Or there's certain locations in the head where I might be like, mm, this doesn't really sound visual. Like visual can be, you know, frontal. It can be at the back of the head as well. Um, but, you know, a headache on one side, like over here, meh, not so much necessarily visual, right? Mm -hmm. so, um, th so there are clues that we might sort of get from a headache probe um, that's visual. But anyway, but other symptoms, I mean, something as simply as, um, when I'm reading, you know, I'm losing my place. Um, I'm rereading. Uh, words are moving or shaky. Um, you know, it, the page seems overwhelming. Like the, uh, it's so busy to me. Um, you know, things are blurry. Things are doubled. Um, you know, I get dizzy when I'm reading. I get nauseous when I'm reading or, you know, even nausea in the car. Um, things bother me. I can't track things. Like if I'm watching a hockey game, I can't track players. I'm having difficulty with that. When I turn my head, my eyes feel choppy. They don't feel quite smooth. Um, things startle me from the side. Um, or when, you know, my kids run around in front of me, that really bothers me. Um, or I'm a teacher in class and that really, really bothers me with all this motion in front of me. Lights bother me. I can't be on the computer screen for more than, you know, 10 minutes without feeling a massive headache or dizziness. Um you know what I mean? So there, there are different kinds of clues. Scrolling bothers me. I can't scroll on Instagram because I'm completely nauseous from doing that. Never mind someone else scrolling in front of me, even me scrolling, uh, doing the scrolling. So I know I'm going on and on. I'm probably talking quickly, but I mean, I see this all the time. Not every symptom is visual in nature, but I have to suss out if there's a visual component causing these symptoms as a neurooptometrist. Mm -hmm. So um, just some examples there. Yeah, I think that's that's it's it's interesting because there's nothing there's no one point that says this is going to be vision and I think that's you know kind of the point of that we're getting across here is that you can have these symptoms but those same symptoms could be neck related they could be vestibular related they could be inflammatory they could be autonomic they could be a whole host of things so the only way to figure it out is to start you know crossing things off the list and if you're thinking like oh you know, I'm in vision therapy and I'm not getting better, then you have to realize that it's not that vision therapy doesn't work. It's that you may have, you may be missing the vestibular and, and neck and inflammatory and other components that go along with it. And so adding that, not exactly. taking one away and adding those in place, but adding that to it may, exactly. may unlock that further for you because all of these things work together. And if you have the right people working on the right pieces and they're communicating together, I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's quite effective. Um, that's your best bet. Exactly. That's your best bet. That's your absolute best bet. Um, what is visual snow? I knew this was the condition you were going to ask me about. It, <laughs> and it's a great question. And it's it extremely important to ask them. Freaky when people tell me about it. It's like they're, okay. yeah, go. I know. Go. I'm going to just go. Okay. Yeah. 
So visual snow is a very, um, it's an odd condition and it can happen with a concussion or without. Um, it doesn't have to necessarily be due to a concussion, but it can happen. I've seen it after a concussion where people have these really strange visual sensations. And that can range from things looking very staticky, almost like a kind of bad TV sort of screen. Literally snow might appear in their vision. Um, both eyes, not just one eye. It's mm. both eyes. And it persists with eyes closed, by the way. So it's not mm. just like eyes closed, it's gone. It's typically with eyes closed as well. Um, it can be precipitated more with stress um, or when the system is kind of jacked up um, or in the sympathetic fight or flight mode, then you can have more snow versus like a flurry. Mm. Um, you can have things like... Um, uh, after images. So you like, you look at something and you look away and that imprint is still there for, um, a moment or so. Um, also colored lights can come or trailing of lights. Um, that's another sort of really strange phenomenon. Um, it's thought to be due to, um, sensitivity in the cortex, like just sort of this hyper excitability in the brain, um, mm. that causes this. So, um, it's a very interesting phenomenon. Um, and it can sort of wax and wane, I find, uh, or it can be constant, um, but it's not migraine. It's very different than a migraine aura. Mm. So that's a distinction. So p- people will say, oh, it's probably just a migraine, but mm. no, it's a very different classification than a migraine. Mm. So now that you're describing this, because I do get migraines with aura and sometimes I'll have these imprints that I will think, oh, I'm getting a migraine, but they, they subside. Is About that... 20 minutes, half hour. Yeah. No, well, not, not even, not even that long. Like. Five. Five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Does that sound yeah. like this a is not snow type of thing? No, it's definitely more kind of more constant. Mm. Um, but, you know, I find that first of all, identifying it, like labeling it and telling patient, okay, this does not sound crazy. This is mm-hmm. what it is. Right. It automatically makes them feel, okay, I know what this is. I'm not just seeing things and wondering what this is. Um, so just reassuring. Um, we still don't know everything about visual snow. Um, as far as sort of management of visual snow, um, so there's uh, studies, some studies in the literature showing that certain color tints can actually mm-hmm. mitigate some of that um, excitability or some of that perceptual, um, uh, those sensations. Um, a colleague of mine in the U.S. actually, I think it, the study is going to be published uh, early next year, mm-hmm. showing that vision therapy over a course of three months can actually either eliminate or like s- significantly reduce the snow just by virtue of strengthening the visual system <clears throat> and doing vision therapy. Um, so it, calm, I, it probably calms the nervous system too. Exactly. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, you know, so that's really, you know, a, a big factor, you know, so are, are we calming the nervous system? Are we sort of strengthening these connections? I, I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know why, you know, yeah. where the mechanism is, but um, but it's definitely a thing. <clears throat> Visual snow, pardon me. <clears throat> no worries. All this talking. <laughs> I'll talk um, while you <laughs> sip. Um, so just just in hearing that description of it, it almost it almost sounds like, it, especially when it's like stress and if you think about autonomic function and dysautonomia, because that's tightly regulated with blood flow. Um, and this to me almost sounds like, you know, some sort of blood flow issue. Like, you know, you stand up too quickly, you get kind of lightheaded and you can see that speckling in the vision. Is that, is that the same type of thing? No, no? Uh, that sounds interesting to me. I, I don't know. I, yeah. I to be yeah. honest. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure, but there's, um, uh, a website, I think it's the visual snow org. Mm. And, um, 
there's a whole bunch of information on it for patients. It's like a good patient resource um, Visual that Snow people can... Initiative. I'm just writing this down so I can put it in the show okay. notes for people after. <clears throat> Visual Snow Initiative. Initiative.org. Okay, cool. Well, I get asked about that one actually more than you'd think. And I'm I'm always puzzled. I'm like, oh, I'm, I don't know. So this is a new one for me in the past couple of years. Uh, but now I feel like I'm hearing it more and more. Um, yes. And actually, even just having your description in this little brief conversation about it, we can put that as like a sub clip on YouTube and people might be able to find, you know, just a brief little description of it, which is which is nice. Um, OK, now, if I'm a clinician and, you know, I'm working with this, are there certain objective findings that I may pick up on a on an examination, let's say I'm doing a cranial nerve examination, I'm looking at, you know, ocular motor tracking, I'm doing H patterns and things like that. I'm looking, you know, doing just kind of a rudimentary visual acuity, um, you know, what, or convergence even, you know, we look at convergence with the VOMS kind of kind of thing, um, you know, and we're not obviously doing, you know, to the, to the level of like neuro-optometric eva evaluations, but what is something that a clinician doing some of this stuff could, should just keep their eye out for and say, mm, I think this person needs, you know, some more advanced, you know, vision work here. I mean, obviously, if there's restriction of movement, um, you know, one eye relative to the other, like just any sort of gross um, range of motion issues, um, if someone's not sure, definitely send them out. Mm. Um, you know, are the movements choppy versus smooth? And if they're not sure, send them out kind of thing. Um, when you're looking at saccades, um, you know, are they grossly slow? Um, are they really like not accurate, like sort of a lot of jumps to get to the next point? Um, just, you know, things like that, that would be obviously abnormal. Um, <clears throat> something that I look at with, uh, eye movements, which is interesting is body sway. So I'll, if the patient can stand, I'll have them stand and I'll check eye movements. And even if the eye movements look perfect, but they're starting to sway back and forth because of the eye movements, then I'm like, hmm, there's something up with their proprioception. Like they're not sure where they are in space because when the eyes move, technically the, the brain's like, okay, we're going this way, but the body has to be like, no, 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 we're centered. But if there's an issue with that sense, with that sort of sense, then um, that's a bit of a flag for not necessarily eye movement issues, but proprioception. So right. looking at the eyes to determine, okay, what's going on in the body, for example. Um, and if, uh, you know, just a quick kind of um, thing that I'll do, and, you know, sometimes it's really astounding, you know, if I have, if I'm testing saccades and having a patient look back and forth between two points and they're like, oh God, that makes me feel disgusting. That makes me feel really sick. Um, and I'll put a white page at, um, sort of as the background, like a blank page and have them do it again. And if they're like, oh, it's so much better, then the problem is not necessarily the eye movement itself. But it could be the the I call it the whoosh factor, sort of that um, that visual motion sensation mm -hmm. in between points, um, and that's something called lack of saccadic suppression. Normally, the brain should like be you know be able to suppress that, mm -hmm. but after concussion, um, the brain's like whoa whoa what was that movement in between points, and that could be very um, symptomatic. So imagine looking around a busy environment and having like whoosh 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 happening. That can be extremely um, troubling, you know, symptomatic, uh, for somebody. So just like a, a little, you know, thing that I try just to see mm -hmm. what happens. Um, but yeah, visual motion could be the issue causing the symptoms with eye movement testing, um, versus the eye movements themselves. That's sort of something to think about. Mm -hmm. 
we do that. I, I use a blank page when I'm, when I'm doing like BPV testing, because sometimes people can fixate on a point in the room and, and suppress the nystagmus. So I, I'll use a blank sheet. Um, right. Just to not allow them any point of fixation. Um, so it's interesting. It's, you know, almost the reverse, I think, of kind of what you're trying to do. But anyway, yeah. It's, no, it's a different application, yeah, yeah, but it's certainly, yeah. you know, yay blank page test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, but... yeah. Fancy. We're getting fancy over here. Right. Um, can you see like, um, you know, like even just doing like cover uncover tests with that, like, you know, cause you do that sometimes just for looking at, um, you know, just eye, those little subtle kind of eye, you know, movements and, you know, what would you pick up like a, you know, like that vertical misalignment you were talking about, would you be able to do that kind of with the naked eye or do you need more advanced? So, you know, as, um, you know, experienced as I am as a vision professional, sometimes I actually miss very mm. subtle misalignments. Um, so I'll do specialized testing to see if there's any vertical, um, like really subtle vertical. And sometimes I prescribe like the most subtle compensating prism to help with that. Like, you know, and I, I go back again to do the cover test. I'm like, I still can't see it. But yeah. then on this, uh, this other test, I'm like, oh yes, yeah, it's, it's there for sure. And then when I put the prism on, they're like, oh, it feels so much better, and I can see clearly, and I don't feel off. And right. so, um, so you can't you can't necessarily rely on that. So if no, it's not, if it's not present, it doesn't necessarily rule it out. So it's correct. Be, and also, if the yeah, and if the if the eyes are, are are aligned and there's no obvious kind of misalignment of the eyes, um, doesn't mean the stress is not in the system. Doesn't mm. mean the eyes are not fighting each other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I'll throw in um, a, a test that sort of uh, has one eye seeing one target and the other eye seeing another target. And like, you'll see kind of the movements of the two targets. So the eyes are literally doing this. Mm. Um, even though on a cover test, it might not reveal that. So there are just certain things. It's really the subtleties um, mm -hmm. that get at people. Um, gross abnormalities. I mean, that's a different story you deal with that. But I mean, it's really detecting that subtlety. Mm -hmm. um, that's... Um, expanding this energy in the brain, um, mm -hmm. over the course of the day. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned, you mentioned even losing your pace and paid place on the page when you're yes. reading a lot of times, um, patients attribute that to cognitive issues. Patients will say, you know, I read something and then I have to reread it and then I have to reread it. And they'll think, they'll think, Oh, my, my brain isn't working. My memory isn't working. You know, I'm not able to think straight or focus. I'm losing my focus, but a lot of that could actually be vision related as well. But it can also be what you're referring to, right? Mm. So the key is, um, in my mind, is, you know, rule out the visual piece first. And if it's still happening, maybe, yeah, maybe there are attention issues, um, mm. concentration, um, working memory, you know, other non-visual parts um, associated with reading. But, um, you know, losing a pl place on a page, um, it can certainly be a spatial issue. Like the eyes just might not know how to judge where to go because it can't judge the space between the words or, you know, kind mm -hmm. of judging straight line, you know, if the line is straight. Um, so it's important to sort of figure out, um, you know, is it an, it may not be like an eye movement issue per se, like the eyes can move, mm -hmm. but it's the judgment of how mm -hmm. to move the eyes of how to track. Mm -hmm. That might be a big problem. Or are the eyes like fighting each other as they're going along? I mean, this can certainly, you know, cause reading issues and, you know, when I fix these or when I sort of address these and then they're like, yeah, no, I'm still losing my place. I'm still, I'm like, mm, I don't know if it's a visual thing at this point. I think right. you have to intervene, say with speech language therapy, um, or figure out if there's like an attention component, um, yeah. and go from there. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily only vision. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, if you just think about just trying to read like one word at a time and not reading it as a sentence, you know, like, yes. you know, normal, healthy reading it as a sentence, you, you can interpret that a lot better. Sometimes you're distracted, you know, I'll be reading like papers, for example, I'll be reading, you know, medical journals and I'll be thinking about random things and I'll read, <laughs> I'll read an entire abstract and be like, okay, what, <laughs> you know, and I'll, and I'll go back and read it again and be like, okay, like you have to just kind of, you know, focus, but I do that too. Yeah. If you're trying to go, like, if you're, you know, let's say you're, you know, over focalized and your eyes aren't moving well, you're going to go one word at a time and you're going to get to the end of that sentence and be like, I don't understand what I just read. For sure. And interesting. Um, when I try, um, like if I try a prism on a, on a patient, like, you know, I'll, I'll have them read some text during the exam, for example. And then I'm like, did it feel choppy? Did it feel smooth? Like, what are you experiencing? It's not just clarity. Yes. I look for clarity, but I mean, what else are you experiencing? And then I'll put maybe what we call a spatial expansion prism, um, mm. just to kind of expand space visually. And I put that on and all of a sudden, and I don't feed them what, you know, what answer to tell, like I say, okay, what does this feel like? Or how, how are you seeing with this? Tell me what you experienced with mm. this lens. And they'll put it on like, oh, I see more of the line now. Um, or I feel smoother mm. um, because it's now not as like, you know, word, word, word. It's sort of more of a flow um, because they can see more and they can flow more through the line. So, um, yeah, so there's definitely this, um, that's a visual component that can impede reading, uh, efficiency processing. When it comes to prisms, um, yes. is it something, cause you know, in, in my, um, you know, my mind, I, I, I know the answer better now, but I'm going to ask the question um, as if I don't, but in my mind, throwing that on is, is almost like a band-aid solution. And so how do you use that prism to actually invoke long-term change in the individual? Like, is that a crutch of some kind? And, and what happens when you remove that prism? Are they just more dysfunctional now because they've been using it or how does that work? Such a good question. Um, so prism, I mean, this is a whole topic in itself because prism is used in different ways. Um, so for example, uh, and it, for those who don't know, a prism is a lens that's thicker on one side and thinner on the other side, like a wedge. And as optometrists, we can manipulate visual space, um, and sort of the way the eyes are working together with prisms. So for example, sometimes, um, you know, the eyes are very misaligned and you'll use some prism just to kind of like make the eyes a bit more aligned. So it just relieves that stress trying to like bring them to level. So the, the prism can actually help bring eyes more um, into this alignment, for example, that's compensating. Um, but then you can actually use prism in other ways to expand visual space, expand visual space on one side, um, have someone sort of feel more balanced as they're walking, um, and really sort of change the way space is looked at. And that can cause better matches, better sensory matches, um, oftentimes with vestibular and proprioception to say, hey, now we can click together a bit more. So in those cases, um, prism can act as a brace. I don't like to use the word, you know, sort of band-aid, but I like to say a brace. It just allows the brain to start to kind of recalibrate, if that makes sense. And you know, uh, so as their vision is, you know, as vision rehabilitation is going forward and they're doing this other therapies with their other, you know, physio or chiro or whoever, um, then, you know, many times these patients will be like, I don't need these glasses anymore, mm. or the glasses don't work anymore because maybe there's their senses shifted and the prism is now shifting them the other way. Um, so I look at it as a brace to kind of 
get the brain a little less confused. And then as they get stronger with their multidisciplinary rehabilitation, then eventually I tell people like this prison might be for like six to 12 months. I've seen people after like three weeks come back to me and say, this prison isn't working anymore because Mm. they did this neck therapy and now Mm. they're not spatially sort of, um, skewed. Mm. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that's, that's great. That means, Mm. uh, you know, your brain is now recalibrated and you don't need that prism to help you recalibrate. Mm -hmm. So it can get very complex with prism. Mm -hmm. Um, now, in terms of other types of rehab, so somebody may get a prism, what else may they be given in terms of a, a rehab strategy? Is it always in person? Do you give them things to do at home? You know, kind of walk me through. You know, rehabilitation, I, and it's not just prism, by the way, it can be colored tints, it can be tape that you put selectively, like binasal tape um, on the glasses to sort of help again, recalibrate vision and space and all that. Um, but Rehabilitation is best with kind of a supported program um, where you do in-office visits, but then home exercises to support as well. I mean, the model of that can be different with different practitioners. Um, Like some people might be very high functioning. They can do, you know, they're pretty independent. They can do most of the things at home. Other people need more support in the office. So you have to play by ear, especially, you know, when it comes to concussion brain injury, you got to look at the individual and say, okay, what would be most feasible um, for them? This is how I approach it. Um, But yeah, you know, I don't want to just like throw someone exercise and say, okay, see ya in like three months and, you know, keep going. I want to have this sort of constant check-in with them and then modification of exercises. Um, You know, exercises are best when they're not too hard or not too easy Mm. for the brain to learn the best. So to actually prescribe that right formula of exercise uh, requires that, um, that support. Mm. When I say in clinic, it can also be virtual in some cases nowadays true. with the pandemic as well. Yeah, so. yeah, true, true, true. I like that little Goldilocks analogy there. Not too, not too hard, not too easy. Right. Yeah, you, exactly. You need to find it. You need to find it just right. Yeah. Um, that's a good one. Um, now in terms of the evidence around vision therapy, I know that it's, that it's, you know, kind of controversial. And I think that there's more and more evidence emerging on this topic, but there's still such a pushback against it from, from, you know, certain members of the community, um, particularly in like the neurology realm and, and, and things like that. They really, you know, kind of push back <sighs> on it. Yeah. yeah. I know, I, yeah. I know, I, I know you're fighting the fight, <laughs> but do you see, do you see evidence emerging to the point where you think that, you know, it'll be included in the next consensus statement? Do you think there's something, there's political underlying things that are, you know, fighting against it or kind of what's your sense of what's going on? I don't, it, this, I mean, it's such a, a tricky topic for sure. I mean, there, we don't have large scale farm type thousands of patients, you know, randomly controlled, double blind, blah, blah, blah. Like we don't have that. You know, what I've been trying to do to fight this fight, I guess, as, as, it, as it were, is to piece you know, kind of smaller scale studies together to create this clinical picture, say, hey, you know, like mm-hmm. there's this pattern emerging. Now there are, um, you know, in recent years, so the past couple of years, there are these vision therapy reviews, um, like these, uh, you know, meta-analysis reviews um, and saying, hey, you know, there's emerging evidence that there's stuff to this, mm-hmm. um, whether it's uh, PRISM or, uh, you know, therapy, whatever, like just this sort of intervention. Um, you know, 
but again, this goes back to my, like, you know, you can't have this as a vacuum vision therapy as a vacuum with rehabilitation. You need to sort of combine it with other therapies and somehow show like, okay, if you do all these therapies together with vision therapy, and then this other group of patients don't even have vision therapy, do the group with vision therapy benefit more than the group without vision therapy? I mean, this is sort of how I see that it should be sort of really shown, um, you know, as far as the benefit. Um, but, and, you know, vision therapy to me also can be like, okay, put on these prism glasses, go see your physiotherapist, do your exercises with them and then come back and see me in a month. And I want to see kind of how you're integrating at that Mm -hmm. point, you know, doing Mm -hmm. your balance exercises and all and manual therapy. And, um, and then I might proceed with some active therapy. It, it, it gets very variable. Right. But, but the point is, um, you know, if you look, you'll find stuff. You know, and many people just don't have the time necessarily or the uh, wherewithal to uh, really dig in mm-hmm. to the literature. This is sort of my, <laughs> yeah. it's like, oh, it's nothing. It's, there's no yeah. evidence. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, it's, the same, it's the same thing with diet and nutrition, right? Especially in the medical world. They poo-poo diet, you know, they poo-poo supplements. They think that it doesn't matter at all, right? Because it's, you know, well, I didn't learn this in medical school. Therefore, it's not a thing. Um, and so, but all this stuff, there's a, there's so much coming out on how, you know, diet can impact concussion recovery and how, you know, there's so much coming out. And I think it's the same thing kind of in, 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 in the world of vision. And there's people that are set in their ways of just, you know, not paying attention to maybe the literature that's emerging from that space. Um, but, um, but yeah, I know there was a recent, I think it was a systematic review meta-analysis that was looking at convergence rehab, finding that yes. A, a people with concussion have convergence insufficiencies and B rehab fixes it. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a, that's a good start, right. Um, to see that level of, of evidence, um, you know, coming out specifically around concussion. So, you know, I mean, I think, I think anecdotally you and I see the benefits in this, um, what kind of work are you doing with U of T right now? What, what kind of studies are you doing? Can you talk about it? I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, we there were um, there's a there's one study that's going to come out on convergence, um, comparing baseline versus post concussion uh, convergence mm. in uh, uh, athletes with um, orthopedic versus concussive injuries, mm. um, seeing if a you know a sort of an issue with convergence is really kind of specific to the uh, concussion um, population. Um, so without getting and, us the results on that, should we be doing convergence testing as part of our baselines? Yes. Ah. And like three times. Three times. Meaning, yeah. So it's better to have um, multiple measurements of uh, convergence. On the same um, day? Than just like consecutively. Right. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, just when I'm measuring convergence in the office, like, when I do it three times, I've noticed that many times, you know, the first time they might be within normal limits, the patient, and then by times, you know, by the third time, they're already like, out to like, you know, outside the normal range because mm. there's fatigue in the system. Like oh, it wow. says something. Wow. Um, uh, or I'll say, you know, the end point might be a certain point um, as I bring, you know, the target closer. And then I'm like, okay, can you recover from that point? And it might take them a long time to recover. So there's a lot of effort in that system because they can't really release that and recover from that. So they're different, you know, pieces of information. But the moral of the story is multiple measurements simultaneously or um, consecutively. 
um, and you and know, do is you, what do you take the the average of that? Do you take the best? Do you take the worst? Or do you just look at all three as a picture? I mean, I I look at all three, but um, I believe the average would be sufficient. Okay, this is sort of yeah, it kind of um, makes sense because you would you would take into account the you would take into account everything just using an average. If somebody was was not fatiguing, their average would would be you know, better than if somebody was fatiguing because their average would start to lag out. Right. But as an individual, you know, for looking at an individual and looking at the first reading versus the last reading, I mean, that, that shows me something, you know, mm. versus just looking at the average alone. I like to kind of see, mm. um, you know, how quickly they might fatigue. Um, but also, um, yeah, no, I mean, I see, you know, patients from U of T, um, there's a, there was another study that was, uh, I guess, uh, because of the pandemic, like there were no athletes there were no mm. subjects, like it was just sort of, you know, but it dealt with, um, peripheral reaction time and, um, whether that's, uh, you know, a factor in, um, prevention of mm. concussion, like r- risk reduction of concussion. Mm. Um, and how'd they measure So that? Did they do the, like a Dyna board or, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, um, but sad oh, faith was not implemented. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, that, um, the university of, I think it's Cincinnati, um, has done a bunch of stuff on that and football players preseason showing that those that had, that did vision training using a DynaVision board preseason were less likely to experience high magnitude impacts during the season. And so yes. the thought is that, and I've had this thought before is that concussion risk is, uh, you know, tied to game awareness, um, and your ability to, you know, see the field better, um, be able to use your peripheral vision better. Um, and yeah. yeah. And did you see that there was a recent study, um, like really recent, I think like this year on, um, defensive hockey players, um, doing, um, sort of multiple object tracking, mm-hmm. um, and their risk of subconcussive injuries was lessened as far as severity. Mm-hmm. Not frequency, but severity, mm-hmm. just by doing this um, just throughout the season, just by doing this kind of training, that spatial mm-hmm. awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, so the notion of vision training to reduce the risk of concussion is a really fascinating topic for me. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's um, I think there's something to it, because even when you look at things um, like neck strength was a big thing, right? Oh, we're looking at neck strength. If you have a stronger neck, you know, you're less likely to have you know concussion because you can stabilize the head better. But when you look at just the amount of time it takes to actually contract the muscles in your neck, it's too late, right? Because you're, when you get a head knock, the peak, the peak impact velocity happens within the first six to 20 milliseconds. Well, biomechanical studies looking at the neck, it takes you at least 90 milliseconds to even initiate the contraction of any muscles in your neck. So unless you have you know, and then, and, and then it takes you another 150 milliseconds to get to half of your maximum voluntary contractile strength. So you have to have, you know, 150 milliseconds plus 90 milliseconds. Let's, let's double the 150 to get to full strength. You have to have almost a half second awareness before that hit happens to be able to contract your neck in time to have any mitigating effect on it. So what's, where's the missing variable? Well, being able to see it coming. Right. So, so, or, you know, cause you can't, you can't prevent things where you're hit from behind or, you know, hit from the side where it's completely outside of your visual field. But 
I, I've always come back to this game awareness principle because one of the one of the theories on why women get more concussions than men is because you know smaller, thinner, weaker necks, right? But I think that when you look at a sport, let's say like like hockey, where they're it's not quite the same sport. Female hockey is non-contact. Male hockey is full contact. They have the same number of concussions, so it's it's potentially a game awareness phenomenon where if you know that you're going to get hit you, you, you may, you know, learn to keep your head up better, keep a better focus around. You may go into situations like going into the corner and get tight and ready. Whereas if you're playing a non-contact game, you may, you may not have that same awareness, that same visual field landscape. You may not go into corners bracing. And so when impacts do happen, maybe they're more likely to result in concussion injuries. I don't know, but I think that game awareness is a big factor, which yeah. And there was a study, I think it was 2017, I think so, where, um, you know, youth female soccer players were shown to actually close their eyes as a penny yes. of all. Yes. Right. So, you know, cutting out that visual information, is that a factor? You know, right. that's a question. Maybe. Right? Maybe. It's helpful for, you know, those patients, those people who are listening, um, who are experiencing this to understand, um, you know, like even when I, um, send an intake form, uh, prior to a patient, you know, coming to the office, they'll be like, Oh my God. Yeah. How did, yeah. Like scrolling is an issue. Yes. Busy patterns bother me. Yes. Uh, you know, there's just certain things I'll probe that, you know, they might not even have either thought of until they read that, or they might be like, yeah, I don't know if anyone really understands this. Um, so, um, you know, those symptoms that I mentioned earlier, I mean, those are, those are really common. There's, uh, you know, there are so many symptoms that can occur, but, um, you know, again, a general eye exam is important and it's crucial. Um, but it's obviously not the whole picture to uncover what's going on in the entire visual system. Um, the, the brain, um, you know, you know, over 50% of the brain, well over 50% of the brain is involved in the visual system in, in one way or another. Like, so without getting too much into anatomy, like for example, um, you know, the, cort the cortex, uh, the frontal cortex is the initiation of eye movements. It's sort of that decision-making. The parietal cortex, like that spatial judgment. Um, occipital cortex is sort of processing what you're seeing. Your brainstem allows your eyes to be stable um, and your vestibular system as well. Um, your midbrain allows sensory integration between visual and vestibular and uh, somatosensory inputs. Um, I mean, I'm reaching at different parts of the brain here and there are just so many, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of neurological real estate involved in vision. Mm -hmm. And so a shakeup in the brain from a concussion, it's not surprising that vision or the visual process is affected in one way or another. And it's, you know, it's impossible to know, for example, if you're hit on, you know, one side of the head, um, you know, you can't say, well, I predict that vision will be affected by X and Y and Z. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people can, they ask me, like, can you predict what's going to happen based on how the head or how the concussion happened? I said, no, you mm -hmm. can't, you have to really sort of dive in. Because everything's sort of bouncing around in there afterwards, right? You know, exactly. And so you have to correlate symptoms with the findings, essentially. Um, not everyone's perfect. I mean, if I get someone who didn't have a concussion, I do a neuro-optometric exam, I'll find glitches. You know, I will. No, no one's perfect. Mm -hmm. But the key is, are these glitches, I call them glitches, and mm -hmm. I think patients like that term, mm -hmm. are these glitches in the system correlating with the symptoms they're experiencing? One thing I forgot to mention, actually, as far as findings, is pupil findings. Mm. So the pupils are 
um, they're huge. Like when we're talking, okay, I'm going to get into a topic now because this is important. Um, so light sensitivity, this is what I get commonly asked. Um, you know, talk about light sensitivity after concussion. Mm. It is so complicated. You can get light sensitivity, light sensitivity from neck issues. Mm. Um, you know, if there's a whiplash effect and your brainstem is affected, your pupils won't know really how to respond, especially to, to changes in light. Um, so many people like with sudden changes in light, they get thrown off, not necessarily with the light, you know, turned on for a while. Mm. Um, there are particular pathways in the brain, um, that are sensitive to blue light that are really hyper excitable after a concussion. So the sort of sensitivity to blue light is extremely common. Um, and the, these pathways also control the pupil responses as well. This is autonomically driven. So if there's a um, dysfunction in the autonomic system, like sympathetic, parasympathetic, fight or flight versus the calming response, then pupil responses can be um, abnormal. And studies have shown that pupil metrics are definitely different after a concussion, um, whether it's like slower constriction, faster dilation, bigger pupils, um, you know, slower velocity of change. So there's just... Um, there's been a bunch of stuff there- on that recently. Yeah. So pupils, pupils are huge. I'm actually, um, I'm getting a pupilometer in the office now, just as a side note. So I'm very mm-hmm. excited to actually mm-hmm. measure that, give mm-hmm. the metric versus just me like judging it. Right. Um, and then you can compare, um, as you know, as healing happens, um, you know, how the pupils are reacting. Cause that's a huge window in itself. Mm-hmm. And just uh, on blue light, you kind of brought something up there on blue yes. light, right? Cause a lot of people are screen sensitive. Yes. Um, you know, we have an online program called the concussion fix, which is all online. Yes. And, and, one concern that people have about joining is like, well, it's on screens. And so um, meanwhile, they've been cruising Facebook. (laughs) That's how they found our ads. So, you know, it it kind of is contradictory in that way. But, um, you know, in terms of in terms of that, I know screens have a lot of a lot of blue light. Is that the main issue? Is the blue light? It can be, but not necessarily 100% the picture. Um, So I've had Many patients say, you know, I have this blue light filter on my screen. I wear these blue light filter glasses and I'm still, the screen is still really, really bothersome to me. Um, one reason that can explain this, I'm not saying it's for everybody, but it's been the case in many patients I've seen is the flicker effect from the monitor. So, um, in a non-concussion um, person, a standard refresh rate of 60 Hertz that's on most computer monitors will, um, will be fine. Um, no problem. You don't, you don't, uh, sort of detect the on off of the the screen as it's continually happening, but in a post-concussion brain, it might be perceived almost like a strobe light Mm. effect. So I'll often, um, recommend that either the laptop have like a gaming quality, like a 120 to 140 Hertz, like really high refresh rate or a flicker free monitor. There are some desktop monitors out there on the market that, um, are flicker free, um, and I've had patients say, oh my God, this is just a game changer. Is that like the, the bank, the B-E-N-Q, B-E-N-Q? Yeah, there's also ViewSonic, there's Asus, um, uh, the Asus screen as well. Like, So there are a few companies that offer this. Now they are large monitors. So another issue that some, pe- some patients have is like, there's a lot of stuff on the screen. It's a big monitor. So I say, okay, why don't you like reduce it to sort of a tablet size within that screen? You're Mm. still getting that flicker free effect and you have a blue light filter built into that um, screen if that helps. Mm. So, um, you know, and blue light filter isn't for everybody. Like I don't like a blue light filter. It just, I don't like the way my eyes sort of look with it, but 
Um, but some patients, um, they'll say, oh my gosh, the blue light filter is just a, a godsend. Mm-hmm. Um, and other patients will be like, meh, doesn't really solve mm-hmm. the issue, mm-hmm. but a flicker-free monitor might. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could be the, the way their eyes are focusing. Um, their pupil responses, it's just not really controlled well. So the pixelated font might be just hard for the focusing zoom lens of the eye to resolve. So you might have to address that with special glasses or therapy. Um, so you have to figure out, is it like the eyes, my eyes are doing it, or is it actually the screen that's the problem or is it both mm. and try to resolve it that way. Mm-hmm. There's some evidence to show like things like light sensitivity and noise sensitivity is related potentially to a hyperactivity of, of the thalamus, which is like yes. a sensory integration. Um, you know, post-concussion gets actually hyperactive. Um, and so that, you know, could have something to do, especially when now things are flickering at you. Um, it's, it's probably, you know, even overstimulating it even more. Um, now in terms of, in terms of the blue filters, I see a lot of patients get these blue filters on my concern around blue filters is the sleep issue. Yes. Because, (laughs) you know, I'm just going to kind of give people a background here is that blue light is actually important. The blue spectrum of light is actually important throughout the day because it basically shuts it shuts off the production of melatonin in our brain that tells us it's daytime. And we have to have that because then when that transitions into nighttime and we lose the sun, um, and well, now we have all this artificial light around us, but historically when you'd lose the sun, that would tell your brain that we've lost that blue light spectrum. And now we're into, you know, you get that more orangey light as the sun sets. And that starts to release melatonin and then, you know, you, you initiate sleep onset. So all these patients walking around with blue light filters, you know, not even just for concussion, I see this everywhere. Um, you know, and what is that doing? Do you think from a sleep standpoint? So, um, so actually there, there was a study released, I think it was last year or this year, I can't remember where. Um, application of blue light in the morning actually helps with um, brain healing, neurocognitive function, sleep patterns. So blue light is actually important. So, you know, you need to get full spectrum, ideally outside, full mm-hmm. spectrum light to sort of regulate your wake sleep-wake patterns. The problem is, is artificial light. This is where I have a problem with mm-hmm. uh, this whole, you know, blue light's not, you know, blue light filtering isn't good. Yeah, you don't you don't want to sort of deprive yourself of that whole spectrum light, but at the same time, if you're in an office all day or working at home on the computer, um, I mean, from a a from a visual comfort standpoint, and also just this blue light exposure, um, I think a blue light filter for those you know um, it's effective for is great. Mm-hmm. Or if they're going into a Walmart or a you know or, or like a, a big department store, and there's or you know there's a lot of flickering lighting or fluorescent lighting, LED lighting. It can be extremely, um, you know, comfortable to have a blue light filter. However, you don't want to wear, uh, either a tint or a blue light filter all day. Mm-hmm. You want to definitely have that whole spectrum light whenever you can. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in the morning to regulate your uh, sleep cycles and to cut out blue light, um, like artificial, especially right before you go to bed. Like mm-hmm. you don't want to be on your devices right before you go to bed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the, the study you're talking about was um, they had blue light versus amber light and it was placed at like a 45 degree angle. It was like, it was artificial. That's why I showed this, but it was placed at like a 45 degree angle in the first, within the first like 
half hour of being awake or something like that, but it actually phase shifted the, the, the people with blue light, it phase shifted their sleep to an hour earlier in the night. And they ended up getting an hour more of sleep per night after 30 days of exposure, whereas people in the amber light didn't. So I think that morning blue light exposure is super, super, super important. And then avoiding blue light in the evenings. My wife and I have blue light blocking glasses that we put on at, you know, seven and we wear them for the rest of the evening. So that by the time we go to bed, we're, we're basically artificially creating that as best we can kind of sleep wake cycle. But yeah, trying to get outside first thing in the morning, um, is, uh, super, super important and yeah, un, or they might, un, unobstructed. Um, yeah, just, no, I, exactly. Or they might have blue light. I might prescribe blue light filtering glasses for like the computer for their, you know, their course of the day or for, you know, for school or whatever. And then, um, but not full time mm-hmm. necessarily. Right. So, um, and again, and even if I prescribe a color tint, like I don't want someone wearing dark sunglasses all day, every mm-hmm. day, first mm-hmm. of all, that's a no, no. Um, for those who are listening, no, yeah. no. You have to expose yourself um, to light, um, but not to the point where it's too painful. But you have to really start to kind of integrate light um, into the eyes for sure. Mm-hmm. The, the more natural. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a good point to leave off. Shirley, thank you very much. I think this is a great conversation. We'll probably have to do another one. There's probably going to be a ton of questions that roll in on this, which means... <laughs> which Usually means we'll have, we'll have another one that, that comes up. But um, Dr. Shirley Blanc, everybody, you can find her uh, at uh, www.concussionvisionclinic.ca. Uh, that's where her information is. Not big on the social media, Shirley, eh? Not big on the I social know. media. <laughs> I know. That's okay. But People you can kind find... of find me, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, you can definitely find her there, concussionvisionclinic.ca. I'll put it into the uh, show notes for... Um, the groups. And, uh, if you want to get in touch with her, uh, for clinical assessment, you can find that information there. If somebody can't get to you and maybe they're in a different country, how can they find, let's say a vision therapist that might be able to help them? So there are different, um, associations, um, where you'd have to find an optometrist near you. So Nora, the Neurooptometric Rehabilitation Association, um, there's, uh, the Canadian optometrist and vision development. So COBD, there's a COBD Canada, uh, chapter, um, and vision therapy Canada. Well, within Canada, that's the, um, the website you can look at for, um, vision therapy optometrists, um, as well. Um, yeah, so they're, they're different. Uh, I mean, all over the world, they're different associations all over the world, but, um, what's the, uh, Austral- what's the Australian one called? Do you remember? Um, I've had um, conversations. I'll, I'll, I knew it, this. I'll, I'll also put it in the show notes. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Yes, yes. No, um, no, no. I'm, I'm like, very embarrassed like the, that I. It's like the Australasian. I think it's OA. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll put it in the show. I'm notes. embarrassed. Yeah, that's okay. There's one in the UK. That, yeah, no, no. Yeah. There's there's uh, a bunch definitely all over the world for sure. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, it's. You know, or you know, it, you know, through Nora or through one of the websites, you can contact an optometrist and say, "Hey, do you know anyone in like yeah, this country, or how do I get to someone in this country?" Um, you know, someone can always direct you. Right. Cool. Thank you, Shirley. Thanks, Kim. Cheers. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.